And for the rest of us, um, turn your Bible on um, or grab your copy of God's Word, and let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, this, if you have one of the Bibles that we provide, it's on page 1015. Page 1015. Last Sunday, Tanner unpacked these key verses for us in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. And he painted this picture and challenge that our lives were to be like windows for people to look through and see not how great we are, but how great God is. And what we're going to see is, is now Peter's going to turn some very tangible ways in how that is fleshed out in our lives. And so today we're going to be looking at how we rep Jesus, represent Jesus in an anti-authoritarian world. And here's the question that we're going to wrestle with. How can our lives, and in particular, the way we, we respond to authority and injustice be windows for people to see the glory of God. Now, I would ask for you to bear with me. These are like two hard subjects here, and they, they require a lot of complexity. So I'm going to do my best today just to pull out the principles from 1 Peter um, and, and asking for God to give us wisdom and grace on how we seek to apply those in our lives. As we think about these Here's one of the main issues or challenges that we face. We live in a world that is very skeptical of authority. Now, on one hand, this makes sense. Because we've seen a number of recent examples of how authority has been abused. Right? The whole Me Too movement is about how sexual abuse from the fashion industry and Hollywood to the church, to the marketplace, to the classroom, and even the government, where people in places of authority have abused that authority to the harm of those underneath them. And so that there's a skepticism. We've seen the brokenness of authority being abused. But also the nature of sin within us naturally leads us to question and reject authority. Just go on a journey with me real quick. We go back to the garden with Adam and Eve. The tempter's there, tempting Eve. And he says, you will be like God. You see, in the garden there, there was... There's this question, like, is, is God going to be your king, or are you going to be your king? And this is the question each of us have to wrestle with. Who was your king? And the reality of what we learn in the Bible is that we have all rejected God to be our own kings. We don't like someone telling us what to do or how to live. We prefer to chase after our own desires and run things our own way without God. In other words, here's what's happening. We, we all act like little gods with our crowns on competing with one another. And what I've just described here is really the essence of sin. Like it's rebellion against God as king so that we can be king. But the gospel tells us another story. Here's what happens in the gospel. In the gospel, Jesus turns rebels, enemies of God, into friends and children of God. Like, that's why the gospel is the foundation of what we do at Redemption Hill. The, the solution to the anti-authoritarian world is I've got to deal, not just, like there are issues of brokenness in our country, but there's also huge issues on the inside, inside of our hearts where we need the gospel to come down and be applied. And so, in essence, this is what it looks like to respond to the gospel. It's to take your, your crown off and throw it down, and it's to make Jesus your king. I mean, that's what it means when we say Jesus is Lord. 
He's my king. I'm following him. When we hear this language, Jesus says, here's how you're to pray. We pray this, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. We're praying, God, it's just daily. God, you're my king. Or we hear these words, seek first the kingdom of God. So I just wanted to lay a little groundwork before we jump into the text because here's the point I want to chase after today. It's this, submitting to God's authority frees you to submit to earthly authority. Submitting to God's authority frees you to submit to earthly authority. Let's go to our text here, 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 13. This is what the Word of God says. Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And then he turns to servants, and he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Father, we need your grace to rightly hear and respond to your word today. So God, have your way. Work in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. First, I want to look at this first section here, 13 through 17, which gives us this this framework. We're, we're to submit to authority as freed servants of God. We're to submit to authority as freed servants of God. You can probably go ahead and, and you're, 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 you've got reflections on the text, and what jumps out to us, 13 and 18, is this word, be subject. Be subject for the Lord's sake in verse 13. Verse 18, servants, be subject. That's the main verb. That's the main theme that's driving all of our text today. To submit here, like just wrestling with what that word means, is more to be subject. It's more than, than, than to just show respect or honor. It comes with it the idea of obedience, we see this jump ahead to chapter 3 real quick. Look at chapter 3, verse, um, verse 5. This is a passage we'll look at next week, but it says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting. You see our word there, submitting. Um, submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham. You see the, the connection with obedience there. Like, Tanner will help us out with that passage next week. What I want you to see is, is helping us. And when we hear submit, like the inclination is one that we're to 
obey. And what does he tell us to be subject to, to submit to? He says in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then he qualifies that. Like, are we to be subject to every created human? No, like, here's what he's getting at. Here's what you're to be subject to, whether to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. And he gives us a number of reasons that I want to help us think through on why we should be subject to governing authorities. The first one is this. When he uses this phrase, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, why does he use that? Why doesn't he just go in and say, be subject to the emperor or to the governors? Here's what's happening. He's reminding us that emperors and governors or, or any like governing earthly authority is a created authority. It is, it, is a, it is a created institution, which means it's not gonna last forever. Emperors and governors retire and die, right? They're, they're gonna come and go, but God's kingdom remains forever. And so what I want you to think about first is this. God is the king of kings and Lord of lords. He is the sovereign over all earthly authority. We see that here in the text. Later on, down in verse 17, he's gonna say, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. There's this distinction here. Every time in 1 Peter, fear is used to a reference to God, not humans. We're, we're fearing God, we're gonna honor the emperor. God is supreme. He is the Lord of all authority. The second kind of, reason that we're given here is that God has ordained all governing authorities for the good of humans. Look here in verse 14. What's, he, he gives us some of the purpose here of these governors or emperors. He says, they are to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Think about it. Without government, there would be anarchy. And evil would run rampant. When we look at parallel texts, we could go to Romans 13. Um, I'm not going to go there right now, but 13, 1 through 7, we even hear language like government has been um, ordained by God. And so we, we should, in light of this, see it as a blessing from God. It, we, we, I know like our anti-authoritarian and our experience, like we're skeptical, but I want us just to hear the words of Scripture like this is a blessing from God. Let me just, I want to pause real quick. If you work in government, I want to just say thank you. Like, can we do that? Let's, uh... I know people get ridiculed in government all the time. Like they, they get, but like to hear somebody, hey, think like you're a blessing. We're grateful for what you're doing. If you know somebody, you're like, go thank them for the work that they're doing for us. Here's some other implications of that. If God has ordained governing authorities for our good, Romans argues this way. To disobey the governing authorities would be to, then to disobey God. He says, as a follower of Christ and acknowledging God as the creator of these, like our inclination should be one of obedience. And so that's why in verse 15 here of 1 Peter, look at what it says. This is the will of God. Be subject to governing authorities. This is the will of God. In, in Romans 13, 2, Paul writes, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. So God is king of all authority. He's ordained all governing authorities. And our obedience to governing authorities silences the slanderous attacks of those who oppose us. He gives us some more reasons here in verse 15. He says, this is the will of God. You, you submitting or being sub, jub, subject to these authorities, and here's gonna be the result of that. The result 
is that by doing good, you would put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You are going to remove any reason or barrier they have to criticize you or slander you. Why? Because remember, what's the larger goal here? My life is to be a window that people can look to and come to God. Like, that's what we're after. So I want to engage in civil government in a way that doesn't hinder people, but encourages people to come and see who God is. So, in other words, if we're not doing good, then, then we're giving excuses and reasons for those outside the church to slander us and the message of the gospel. By my good conduct, I've removed barriers for people to come to Jesus. So let me just give you a, like, kind of give you a general principle. Our posture or our bent or our inclination should be one of submission and obedience to governing authorities, all things being equal. Like generally, the text is saying that should be your posture. But I want to give one caveat. The text also alludes that there are exceptions to this general principle when we should disobey. We see this here in verse 13. Be subject, what's it say? For the Lord's sake. That word Lord, he's my king. He's about to talk about emperors and governors, but for the Lord's sake. Hey, remember, as you think about this submission authority, it falls under your ultimate authority, which is to fear God. He is your Lord. He is your king. And so, if there were to be situations where these two conflict, Jesus is Lord. We see this played out in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4. I think we've got it on the screen up here. Um, it says this, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So here we've got conflict, right? The, the word of God says, Go tell people about Jesus. Acts 1.8, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now they're saying, no, do not go talk about this Jesus. The government's telling them that. The governing authorities. And so what do they do? It says this, Peter and John answer them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen or heard. And then later in chapter 5, they say this, because the authorities came back again and said, hey, did we not tell you to be quiet? And they said, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. God is the supreme authority in our lives. Human authority is not ultimate. It is out of reverence for and submission to God that we obey earthly authority. So if the government or governing authorities were to demand things that would explicitly forbid us from following God's will, Peter's saying we should side with our Lord. Now, that may bring with it suffering and persecution, but this is what we're called to do as followers of Christ. Then he goes on and he talks about some of the practicalities. He's given us reasons for submission. And then he talks about the practicalities in verse 16. Now, in the ESV here, verse 16 starts with live as people who are free. But that word live there is not in the text. That's being supplied. If you follow the flow of the Greek, this is what it's going to be like. Be subject, verse 13. And then picking up in verse 16, as people who are free. The verb here is be subject, not live. Be subject as people who are free. There are three, three phrases here that are tied to that main verb, be subject. It is live as people who are free. Don't do your, use your freedom as a cover for evil and live as servants of God. He's fleshing out here for us. What does it look like then? 
to be subject to the Lord's authorities. Let me, um, to the governing authorities, let me walk through these briefly. The first one is this, submit as freed followers of Jesus. You are free. This is what the gospel does. I'm not enslaved to sin anymore. And I'm not, I'm not enslaved to any governing authority. I've been freed, and, and I, Jesus is my king. And so I submit now, not out of weakness, but as a freed person following Jesus. Second, I submit not using my freedom as an excuse to indulge in evil. That's what he means there. Not using your freedom as a, as a cover-up or as an excuse to go do evil. What is the point of our freedom? Why does he free us? He frees us not so that we can go and live in evil and sin. He frees us that we may go do good. That's what verse 12 is about, right? So that when they speak against those evildoers, they may see your good deeds. We've been freed for that. We've been freed for our lives to be windows to, to display good works for the glory of God. And then he says, submit as servants of God. We are free to serve God and live underneath his authority. And so it's reminding us that, number one, Jesus is Lord. I'm a servant of God. And so any authority I submit to is, is underneath God's ultimate authority in my life. I belong to him. The emperor is not my king. And then we have this verse 17 where he's summarizing a number of different kinds of relationships and he starts off, and these are all four commands, four imperatives. Honor everyone. Every single person. Literally, he says that. Honor everyone as a result of being image bearers, everyone is due honor. Second, love the brotherhood. There's, you guys know this as, as we look at the church and what God has done for us. There is a special bond between fellow believers. There's a familial love that we should have for each other. We've already talked about fear God. But then finally, he says here, honor the emperor. And this is similar to what Paul says in Romans. Look at this. Romans 13, verse 7. Pay all, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now think about this. Was Paul writing that and Peter writing this from a Christian culture? No. Paul wrote those words under the reign of Roman rulers. Yet he still exhorted believers to display honor and respect. We're to show honor to people and leaders even if they are not fully admirable. In other words, our honor isn't contingent upon them deserving it. Now I know this probably goes contrary to everything the world says. But that's the point of, of our life. Now, I ran across an article by Tim Challies this week, and let me just give you a few caveats that, that I think may help you out. One is this. It may be helpful to distinguish between honor and obedience. I can still disobey the governing authorities out of obedience to my King Jesus and do that with honor? It may be helpful to distinguish between the person and the position. I can honor the position even when there isn't anything honorable in the person. Okay? I can distinguish between honor and agreement. I can honor someone without approving everything that they've done. And then we can distinguish between honor and enabling. I can honor without enabling sin or sinful patterns or covering up evil. So just to kind of summarize, our bent, I know I shared the ex exception there. Like there's an exception, Jesus is king. But all things being equal, generally, our posture should be one of submission. It should be one of obedience. 
That ought to be a way for the world to look at us and see why Jesus is, is empowering me to do this. I know this isn't easy, but I'm doing this because I'm submitting to King Jesus. Now let's look at the second half here. In the second half, in verse 18, he addresses servants or slaves. And, and here's the main truth that I want to run after in this one. It's this, endure injustice following the example of Christ. Endure injustice following the example of Christ. When, when the text says servants here, this is another word for just slaves. Slaves. Um, and I want to I linger here for a second. Slaves were to be subject to their masters. Slavery in the Greco-Roman world was different than the slavery that we've seen in the U.S., which was based on race. In the Greco-Roman world, someone became a slave by being captured in war, being kidnapped, or being born into a slave household. Some even chose to sell themselves into slavery in order to survive financially. So th there's, not a, it, it, there's not a one for one related to each of those there. But I would say this, even though they're not equal, there's no doubt that most slaves probably lived really hard lives and could suffer mistreatment at the hands of their masters. I mean, the text alludes to that, right? I mean, look down here. Verse 20, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. So like, let me help you think about this. Like we see the presence of like Peter here addressing slavery and he's not necessarily addressing the institution of slavery. What he's doing, he's helping believers think about, hey, this is your reality. How are you to glorify God given this reality? So for the most part in the New Testament, it doesn't criticize the institution of slavery, but it doesn't commend it either. Primarily is addressing readers in the context in which they live and is calling for a godly response. Though we see at different spaces throughout the New Testament, we see in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, hey, if you were a slave when you came to Christ, remain that. But if, you if you're able to avail yourself of that, go. Like, you see, you see hints of that. You can go read Philemon, um, which is about a letter there related to um, a master and a slave. So, I mean, there's no doubt that we would argue from the New Testament, like, um, for the abolition of slavery. Like, there's no doubt that it would argue for that. The reality is Peter saying, this is your current reality. What do you do? How do you respond? How can your life be a window for people to see how great God is. And so he says this in verse 18, you're to be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Not just to the good and the gentle, but to the unjust. This is a hard saying. You've got crooked, dishonest masters, and he's still calling them. That's not an excuse for them not to be subject to. And so as we think about how to apply this, none of us are in a master-slave relationship like this. But these principles are relevant to all believers, and I would say they can be applied to the other subordinate relationships in our life, including employment relationships. I wouldn't say that's the only, but as you think about any subordinate relationship, we've got principles here for how we go and apply that. Before I jump in, I want to deal with this little phrase that says, servants be subject to your masters with all respect. 
when you read that, it comes across as if what Peter's after is our attitude, that we're to be respectful. But this word here is fear. Literally in the Greek it says, servants be subject to your masters with all fear. And every occurrence of this word fear in 1 Peter is directed toward God, not humans. So while respect refers to an attitude, here's what Peter's after here. He's calling slaves to submit because of their relationship to God, out of fear. It's similar to how he starts verse 13. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake. That's the for the Lord's sake here. Be slaves, be subject to your masters out of fear. God is your master, not this earthly master. And so your submission here is falling underneath the lordship of who God is. God is. Not the masters, the ultimate authority over slaves. So just as with governing authorities, if masters were to command slaves to violate God's will, slaves should disobey even if they have to face suffering. And so the general principle is the same for both. Like with governing authorities, what's their disposition? Our inclination is towards submission and obedience. It's the same here for slaves. Generally, in most situations, slaves should be inclined to submit to and obey their masters, even unjust ones. You ask, why does he give this reason? He gives, why does he call us to this? He says he gives us two main reasons. And this is how we'll spend the rest of our time. In verse 19, you see the word for. Tell us why. Here's why they're to do this. And then in verse 21, we see the word for. So we're going to look at 18 and 20. We're going to break that down, and then we're going to look at 21 to 24. The first section here starts in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is you if when you sin you're beaten for it, you endure But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. What's repeated there? Gracious thing. Thank you. Hey, I love, we're doing some light bulbs, some observations here. At the very beginning, you have, for this is a gracious thing. And in verse 20, at the very end, you have, for this is a gracious thing. That's an inclusio. It's telling us that that's going to help us uh, interpret and understand everything that's happening in between it. So what does he mean here? This is a gracious thing. Well, that phrase seems to be synonymous with the word credit in verse 20. For what credit is it? So it's like, it's to live in a certain way that that there is a credit or, or that you receive something. And what it's implying is that those who endure suffering while doing good receive a reward from God. In other words, for this is a gracious thing. This is commendable. God is going to see your suffering, and he is going to reward you. This is why you're to be subject. God sees. You may face severe suffering, but look to God. He will reward you. Now, we're not told exactly what this reward is. Is it the end time salvation that that 1 Peter's already been pointing us to? to? Like back to chapter 1, verses 3 and 5, the uh, inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven? Or is is some additional rewards given by God at the end time? Either way, what the reward is, what is clear is that God sees every injustice. I want you to hear me. God sees every injustice that you endure, and it will be rewarded by him. How do I receive this reward? He unpacks that in 19, and so for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, it's we receive this reward when we end your suffering with an awareness and an allegiance 
to God. It's mindful of, of God. He's my ultimate master. But then I, I endear in a particular kind of way. He says this. When you sin and you're punished for it, what have you gotten? You've just gotten what you deserved. Like, that's, you did that wrong and there was a punishment for it. You got what you deserved. There, there's no reward. There's no reason to congratulate yourself on that. But he says this, when you do good and suffer for it and endure, that's what is a gracious thing. The closest parallel in the Bible we have to this is Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6, this is what Jesus says in the Gospels. Luke 6, beginning in verse 32. I think we got it on the screen up here. It says this. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward, you hear that? Your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. There's a reward here, but this also helps us understand what Peter's getting after. When you live a particular kind of way, your life can be a window for people to see who God is. In this instance, he says, look, your God is a very merciful and forgiving God who forgives and loves enemies. So you have an opportunity. You're being invited into an opportunity to live in a very tangible way to say, this is what my God is like. When you face injustice, it's an opportunity to display to the world how merciful God is. You were once an enemy of God, and you've received mercy. So extend mercy. Now, just, just like me, you're probably wrestling, even right now, with some questions about this. Here are two that I wrestled with this week. Does this mean that injustice is okay? What? No. Let me just, like, we, just because he's not addressing injustice doesn't mean we ignore the rest of the Bible. Like, it's clear when we look at the scriptures that God is a God of justice. Like, and he calls us to run after justice, to fight for justice. It's not minimizing that. We should speak up about injustice and strive to bring about justice in the world. Let me ask another question. Does this mean that I cannot speak up about the injustice in my life? I would say no. If you are experiencing abuse, speak up and get help. This is not, this text is not to be justified for you to keep quiet and just keep enduring abuse. That's not what, that's not what this is after here. You guys with me? And I'm going to get to this point a little bit more in a little bit. But what he's getting after here is, like, what is the opposite of endure suffering? When you face injustice, what is your initial gut response? Let's be honest, okay? Let's not put the, you know, not like we in church, like, what's like? No, don't, maybe not that honest. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I want revenge. Anybody? Yes. Look, that we all long for justice. And, and this is what Peter's getting at here. What, these slaves, when you face injustice, he, he's saying, man, don't go and seek revenge. And we're going to see why in a second. We're going to look to Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean 
that there may be governmental authorities that execute and carry out God's justice right now. Like, we're, we're reading these passages together. So reason number one that we should have, we should endure suffering and injustice is that, that God rewards those and it's a way to display the mercy of God. The second reason starts in verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The second reason is because when you say Jesus is Lord, you're now a follower of Jesus. And to be a follower of Jesus is to walk down the pathway of unjust suffering. This is the pathway of our Savior. We should expect that it's going to be a pathway for us. In other words, suffering isn't a detour. It is a part of God's plan. So what can we learn about Christ's suffering that can help us understand how we are to endure unjust suffering? What we see here in 22 and 23, we see Peter talk about the quality of Christ's suffering. And for sake of time, I'm not going to be able to go there today. But Isaiah 53 is ringing all through these verses. Like this week, go read Isaiah 53. We preach through that. What is Isaiah 53 about? The suffering servant. It would make sense like that that's echoing all behind what First Peter's saying there. But we see the quality of Christ's surfing. The first one is, is this in verse 22. It says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus only did good. So you're going to see some parallels here. The call is, hey, don't, don't suffer for doing sin. Suffer for doing good. Like Jesus there was no sin in his life. He never sinned. His suffering wasn't for wrongdoing. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus did not threaten retaliation. Now I want you to think about this. Jesus' sinlessness wasn't easily attained. You put yourself in his shoes. You're on the cross. Crown of thorns. They've spat on you. They've bruised your back. They've driven nails in your hands and in your feet. They've stripped you. They're mocking you. Tim Challey says this, it was a moment of grave injustice, the sickest, most twisted moment in all of human history. And how does Jesus respond? Father, strike them down. No, what's he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. How could he do that? It's this little nugget here in verse 23. It said, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The word himself that we have in our text here is, is not in the Greek. That's supplied. So it's not just he entrusting himself. It's Jesus was entrusting and handing over to God every dimension of his life, including the fate of his enemies. He's entrusting all of that to God. And this is where our strength comes from. Because this isn't easy. Do you realize that what God's calling us to do here is not an easy life? 
But this tells us that we have a God who judges justly. God is a God of justice. Listen to this. Every wrong deed and act of injustice will either be paid for by the blood of Jesus or repaid to that person by God at the final judgment if they refuse to repent. Every single one of them. Either Jesus is going to pay for it or they're going to pay for it. And so Romans 12, we can hear these words. And it says this, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what Peter's getting at. Don't let the injustice you're facing overcome you. God will bring justice to every single one of acts of those injustice. You entrust yourself to him. He will bring vengeance. And then we see the result of Christ's suffering in 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus is the substitutionary sacrifice. He paid for my sins and your sins. When you look at the cross, I don't know where everybody is. Maybe you're new today and kind of hearing this Jesus thing. This is at the heart of the gospel. None of us get to God or get to heaven because of anything good in us. It's not even me enduring injustice that gets me to heaven. It's not me obeying the government authorities that gets me there. I'm going to stand before God one day and say, God, there's no reason you should let me in. I am wicked. I'm a sinner. I'm my own king. I've rejected you as king. But you sent your son. He never sinned. He lived a perfect life. He faced suffering and persecution and never reviled. He died on the cross for my sin. And I believe in him. The only reason you should let me in is because of what your son has done for me. He's paid for all of my sins. I'm eternally grateful to him. He's my Lord. That is, that's the gospel. If and right now, you can look to Jesus. We're all sinners. If you haven't looked to him and said, Jesus, I'm trusting you. You pay for my sins. Forgive me. Cleanse me and help me to run and follow after you. Just call out to him today. When I pray in a second, you just call out to him with faith and believe today. Otherwise, you're going to face the judgment for all of your sins. He paid for our sin. He suffered to bring healing and he freed us so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's because of his death. I now live a different kind of life. I'm empowered to devote myself to live a holy life. And he rescued me. Look at this, verse 25. You were straying and through his death, I've been rescued. I've returned to the overseer and shepherd of my soul. I wrap up by drawing attention to this. Do you see the result of his suffering? Jesus suffered injustice and it was the fruit of your salvation. Here's what Peter's doing. 
implicitly, here's what he's saying. Your suffering can have the same effect on an unbeliever. You think it was easy for Jesus to go to the cross? No, but because of that, you and I have eternal life. The moral goodness of your life and enduring suffering can draw others to faith in Jesus, and that ought to be our prayer. God, I'm going to endure suffering. May my life be a window so that all of Medford and greater Boston and the world can see you are a merciful God who takes street that sheep that have strayed and enemies of God, and you bring them back. And there's many in our city. God, would you help them to see how merciful you are and bring them to yourself? It may seem like God's asking us to do the impossible. And in a sense, you're right. Apart from his wisdom, presence, and power, you can't live this way. But with him, you can. Let's pray. And Father, you have extended much mercy to us. Undeserved mercy. God, we pray that you would now empower us. I didn't even begin to touch on how do we, all the possible applications of our text today. God, we need your grace and wisdom. We need your spirit to convict and lead us. So God, we ask for your grace. Show us, give us a heart of of inclination towards submission. God, we cry out and pray for justice. God, there's a ton of brokenness and injustice and abuse of authority. But God, we know your authority is good. We want to follow that. God, I don't know what injustices people may be living in today. God, I pray. I cry out for justice and I pray for strength for them to endure and not seek retaliation. Praying that God salvation to even enemies because that's who we want. God, help us to display that. Great